wish everyone a happy new year as we kick off 2023. Uh, would you mind just taking a moment, let's pray together and invite God into this space. Let's do it. Hey, Father, I just want to say thank you so much for all that we could celebrate in 2022. Lord, I know each individual here is a walking, talking, breathing miracle. Lord, that they're not here by accident. It's not a mistake, Lord. And, and we just thank you, Lord, that in each of these stories, in each of these lives, Lord, there's an example of your goodness, of your faithfulness, of you showing up. We thank you so much, Lord. Thank you that we can be a part of a church community where you've been active in working this last year. And we're so excited for what you have for us in the coming year. And God, I know there are folks in this room, Lord, whose stories, uh, as they look towards 2023, are marked with some pain, some struggle, some fight, some challenges. And we ask, God, that while we look towards 2023, maybe with some pensiveness or trepidation, Lord, we ask that you would replace it with hope, with joy, with peace, with your shalom. And God, that 2023 would be marked, Lord, by your generosity. Thank you for the fact that we've got to dive into that this year. Uh, speak through me today, guard us from the enemy, and I pray, Lord, that we would walk out of this room different than when we came in. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So a few weeks ago, Danny kicked off a series uh, during the holiday season here called What Can I Bring? And the whole goal of this series was to discuss this idea of generosity. And the reason why we wanted to talk about generosity is because the holidays tend to be able to bring out the spirit of generosity, not just with people who go to church, but really throughout our whole culture. It's, it's a time literally marked by generosity. And we wanted to just ask the question as we studied generosity, what would it look like if we as a church were marked by generosity, not just for the month or two before Christmas, but literally as every part of our lives every day of the year? What happens if, if generosity was a core part of our DNA? How would that change things? And the first week of the series, Danny had this stellar killer line uh, where he said that we are never more like God than when we are generous. And I thought that was incredibly profound that it stuck with me this whole time. We are never more like God than when we are generous. Generous is a core part of the character of God. And when we're generous, we look like him. It's beautiful. And so I am gonna close out the series today uh, with what I am calling the final act of generosity. Now you'll have to indulge me for a second. Like the word final there, like makes it sound like we're all gonna die tomorrow. I don't, that's like a, hy it's hyperbole, it's an exaggeration. But I wanted it to feel important. Because what we're gonna talk about today, I think is such a core concept of love and of generosity that I think without what we're gonna talk about today, I think it's actually impossible to be generous. And so as we dive into that, uh, we're gonna just really hone in on the fact that what we're studying today, is, it creates the foundation for generosity and, and love to thrive. So before we hop into it, I'm gonna leave us a little bit of a cliffhanger there. As we dive in, we're gonna, let me just recap where Danny first kicked us off in the series. He, week one of this series, we talked about the book of Genesis. And we went all the way back to the beginning of the story in Genesis chapter one, where God creates the world. And he speaks, and literally as he speaks, you hear this pattern where he says, it is good, it is good, it is good. Everything he creates, every moment he speaks, it is good. 
And that's such a, that creation is such a beautiful expression of his generosity that literally God can make something good come out of nothing. And it's immensely profound. As a matter of fact, I think that's what generosity does to this day. It looks like a situation where there's nothing. And it says, how can we create something good here? And so creation is the first act of God's generosity, and then he creates humanity to share in that goodness with him, to partake in it, and also to steward and care for it alongside of him. It's a beautiful picture. But somewhere along the way, the human species, the human race, began to believe this lie that God was withholding goodness from us, and therefore we needed to snatch and take that goodness apart from any relationship with God himself. And so that's what our human family did. They sought out to take the goodness apart from a relationship with God, but detached from that relationship, there's only death. And so the question came in, God, what are you gonna do to fix this? What are you gonna do to solve this? And God, and God creates in his plan that he's gonna save the world. He's gonna restore his creation through this one family. But in this one family, you see the cycle of dysfunction and brokenness just percolate through the whole family. It's, it's this really interesting scenario where, where this one family that God's going to use is as broken, as dysfunctional as any of our families. And we see that same desire to say, I'm going to try to obtain that goodness apart from God himself. And so you see it initially with two brothers, Cain and Abel. Cain says to his brother, you are in the way of me getting the goodness I want and deserve, so I'm going to get you out of the way so I can get what I want. And you see that cycle repeated over and over and over in light of this family. You see it repeated where, where Lot tells his uncle, you get out of here because I want the good land for myself. You see Sarah kick out her single mother slave because I want the goodness for myself. You see Jacob lie to his brother and his father in order to steal the inheritance and the blessing because I want the goodness for myself. And you see the cycle of dysfunction never ends. It continues and, and it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And, and the interesting thing about all of this is I think this family from 4,000 years ago gives an interesting picture about families today. And, and I think the picture is this, that if we do not deal or heal from our trauma and our damage, we are going to transfer it. We are going to pass it on. If we do not heal and engage with the parts of us that have been wounded, we are gonna pass it on and we'll continue and perpetuate the cycle. And for those of us that are like, I'll just ignore it, you are unwittingly transferring it. Because it's only when we begin to heal from it that we can break the cycle. But this family never does, and so they keep passing it on and keep relaying it to one another, and we see that at play in this first book of the Bible. And the question comes in, God, how are you possibly gonna fix this and what breaks the cycle? And I believe what breaks the cycle is one single word. It's the word forgiveness. Forgiveness. That both God is going to have to pave the way for forgiveness to happen with humanity as a whole, and also in all of our relationships, forgiveness will have to be a core part of our dynamic. By the way, um, who here loves puns? Does anyone here like just like, like literally laughs inside whenever you see a pun? Oh, yeah. Okay, good. All right, you're good people. 
I literally told a group of our pastors this week that I was tempted to, because we're in a generosity series, I was going to call this talk putting the give back and forgive, but no one else laughed like this room. So <laughs> I thought it was the funniest thing I've ever come up with. But forgiveness is, to me, a twin concept of generosity that without both of them, you cannot have love. They're so core to the DNA of love that forgiveness needs to be a part of all of our relationships. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. has this amazing quote where he says, we must develop and maintain. Interesting verbs, by the way. Notice it's not that we just need to have. We need to develop and maintain the capacity to forgive. He who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power to love. That's profound, right? And a guy who really had to learn forgiveness by experience, he was cursed to learn forgiveness. That apart from forgiveness, it is impossible to love. And I think we all get this in all of our relationships. I think we get it from a young age even. You see, and um, let me just give you a little peek under the hood of the Borellis household. Uh, uh, at the end of summer, early into fall, we discovered a leak in our house. And long story short, insurance ended up having to cover for a lot of mitigation and restoration, and our home life has been crazy, to say the least. And we have two kids. We have my oldest daughter is two and a half years old, and we have a nine-month-old. And if you've ever raised a toddler, you know that routine and structure are your best friends. And that the moment that, you, uh, that routine goes out the window, usually behavior does too. And the problem is, my two-year-old Rory, I got a picture of her, is one really adorable, like, I'm, I'm pretty confident she could tell me, let's go rob a bank tomorrow, and I'd have a hard time saying no. I, I think I would say no, but I would have a hard time. <laughs> uh, and the other thing, just, I've been waiting for a time to share this with our church family. Uh, she's been in this age where she's just parroting everything we say. Like, I'll say something, and then, like, two weeks later, I'll hear her walking around the house, like, repeating it. And so, basically, if you want to know what I'm like outside of church, just follow my two-year-old around, because she's like a, wadding, uh, like a walking tape recorder. But uh, I w I've been wanting to show you this, because she sees me here on stage from time to time, and she decided to start doing what I do. And I have a quick little video for you. Take a look. Welcome to Kisses. We're glad you're here. So that was a quick six seconds. Ryan, can we show it one more time? Welcome to Kisses. We're glad you're here. <laughs> so for those of you that didn't quite hear it, she's grabbing a spoon out of the drawer, lifting it up to her mouth as an imaginary microphone, and saying, welcome to Kesed. We're glad you're here. <laughs> So, but she's as smart as a whip, but the thing about it is, is in this season where she has no routine, no structure, and doesn't quite know how to deal with her emotions, she responds by acting out. And one of the things that she's been doing when she's been really frustrated is hitting her nine-month-old sister, Haven. And we, we keep telling her no, and, and we're really working on it. But lately, she'll, like, she'll lift up her hand to hit her when she's frustrated, and Haven's just like this nine-month-old looking at her sister with complete adoration. <laughs> And Rory just like lifts up her arm and then like makes eye contact with me and I'm looking at her with like my angry eyes and I'm like, no. 
And then she like, it's like a standoff. It's like an old Western movie where we're just like staring at each other. And then without breaking eye contact, she just goes and hits her sister, looking me dead straight in the eyes. And I just thought like, who is this person who's like that hardcore? I know I'm not the most intimidating guy, but I am her father. <laughs> and so I, uh, I pick up Rory and I have to walk her out because she just hit her sister. And I'm like, no, Rory, that's not okay. And then she's been learning to say sorry. And she's like, sorry, Dada, sorry, Haven because she knows she did something wrong. And one thing that my wife has started to do, just because we really want to teach this lesson, is we never just say, it's okay, when she says sorry, and we never just are like, well, don't let it happen again. Particularly my wife, we always say, I forgive you. Because we want her to know that forgiveness is always available to her. That there's never gonna be something she does that is beyond forgiveness. And so we want her to know always, I forgive you, you are forgiven. Well, she's decided to skip a step recently. And when she hits her sister, and I pick her up, and I'm walking her out, and she says, sorry, Dada. Before I even get the chance to respond, she says, I forgive you, Rory. <laughs> like, she's like, let's just cut out the middleman. <laughs> I forgive myself. <laughs> Which, by the way, I think there's a lesson in there, too, for all of us, learning to forgive ourselves. But I think she gets it, though. I think she gets that forgiveness is so important to any relationship that deep down in her heart, she wants to be made right with me, that she's like, that she needs to know that she's forgiven. So she says it herself. Forgiveness is that important to relationships. Henry Nouwen has this quote, forgiveness is the name of love practiced among people who love poorly. The hard truth is that all people love poorly. We need to forgive and be forgiven every day, every hour, increasingly. That is the great work of love among fellowship, the fellowship of the weak that is the human family. We all need forgiveness, and we all need to forgive. It's so core to every relationship we have. So as we dive in and talk about this today, I don't wanna talk about this in a black and white uh, kind of sense. I've heard a lot of messages that give a lot of cliche and pithy phrases for forgiveness, you know, like forgive people who don't forgive or burning down the bridge they themselves need to cross and, and, and uh, unforgiveness is like a poison that you mean for your enemies but that you yourself drink. And, and we talk about it in so, such cold, sterile, black and white terms. And by the way, Jesus is very intense when he talks about forgiveness. I don't want to minimize that intensity, but I want to also talk about it in a manner that's very understanding. Because I don't know if there's a greater cost we pay than forgiveness. And there are folks in this room who have a mountain of hurt, damage, trauma, and for me to act, sit up here and act like you just need to forgive when you walk out of this room is uncaring. The thing about it is, is there are people in this room who have been abandoned. There are people in this room who have been abused. There have been people in this room who have been assaulted. And I just want to tell you that you're seen. I see that pain and none of us here take it lightly. That was wrong, that was evil and you didn't deserve it. 
And so I just want to let you know you're heard. And my goal today is not to guilt you into forgiveness. Please hear me on that. Like I said, this is one of the greatest acts of faith and the greatest cost we can pay. But my hope is, is that when you walk out of this room, you will have the hope that you can begin the process to forgive. Because I truly believe this, Danny's phrase at the beginning of the series when he says we're never more like God than when we are generous, I wanna add an appendix to it. And I don't want anyone else to get the credit but me. Just kidding. But he says, but I want to add, we are also never more like God than when we forgive. We are never more like God than when we forgive. And so I, I want to, to demonstrate that today through a powerful story. Danny kicked off this series in the book of Genesis, demonstrating that God's generosity could create something good out of nothing. And we're going to bookend the series with the last chapter of the book of Genesis. And I want to show you that God can not only change, take nothing and make it good, but he can actually transform evil and turn it into good. And forgiveness is how we can take part in it. And so I mentioned the guy Jacob who stole his brother's inheritance and ran, and he ended up having 12 kids with his four wives, which is the most dysfunctional sentence I've ever said in church. <laughs> but he had 12 kids with his four wives, and he ended up having a favorite son with his favorite wife, which is the second most dysfunctional sentence I've ever said in church. And obviously, if you've ever been a part of a family, a blended family, and you have stepkids or step-siblings, you know that one of the most painful things is to have a, another kid that feels like the favorite. And it hurts all of our families when, that, when it feels that way, when we feel like we're the unwanted one. And Joseph, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, he's the favorite, and it creates a lot of animosity, tension, brokenness, and divisiveness in that family. His brothers deeply resent him for the the affection of their dad. And by the way, Joseph um, is a victim in it, but also he can be kind of a jerk. Like, uh, and, and early on in his story, we read that he reports back to his dad on the behavior of his brothers, and that word in the original language for reporting is like literally the, similar to the idea of tattling. It's going to tell the authority on the mistakes of someone else. So he's tattling on his brothers, which doesn't, making he's deserving of anything that happens to him, but I just want to let you guys know that it's a normal family relationship. But what I want to talk about is how much they have just seen this cycle of dysfunction and brokenness. And it's passed on from generation to generation to generation to generation. And no one has been able to break the cycle. And so Joseph's brothers see him, and they see him as an obstacle to claiming the goodness that they feel like they deserve, and so they decide they're going to kill him. And remember the beginning of the book, the first family, a brother killed a brother because the brother was in the way. The end of the book, there's this temptation for, a brother, for brothers to kill a brother. The pattern just keeps getting repeated because, again, if we don't deal or heal from our damage and our trauma, we are going to transfer it, and we're going to repeat it. But one of the brothers has this, this pocket, this moment of mercy, and he says, let's not kill him. Amen. Let's sell him into slavery. <laughs> and this pathetic excuse for mercy 
they decide to throw them into a pit and wait for a, a group of traveling like mercenaries to go by, and they're like, we'll sell them then. But then that traveling mer like the traveling crew of mercenaries see Joseph in the pit, and they decide to take them themselves. So they don't even get paid for this act of mercy. <laughs> but those brothers, those 10 brothers, end up causing decades and decades of trauma and damage to Joseph. Where he's in prison, where he's a slave, where he's wrongly accused. And sometimes we can read the Bible, and Joseph's story's long, it's 20% of the book of Genesis. But we can read it in a couple short stints and we think that it happened quickly. But it was decades. And I just want you to picture what you would be thinking if you were sitting on, down in the bottom of a prison cellar what you would do to the people who caused you so much pain. And I guess I wanna ask you, every one of us here has a person in our life that we can visualize that has caused a tremendous amount of damage to us. What would you say? What would you do if there were no consequences? If, if, what would you say, what would you do if no one would blame you? Because that's what's gonna to happen to Joseph. You see, through a series of miracles, he ends up becoming number two, like the second in power over the most powerful country in the world at this point, Egypt. And he ends up saving people directly from a famine that impacts the whole Middle East at this time. So much so that his brothers end up having to come to Egypt to seek help. And who do they happen to run into but the brother they sold. But Joseph spares them, and their thought initially is because their dad because their dad was still alive and was so important to Joseph that he kept them alive. But at the end of the book, is their dad dies. What's Joseph going to do? And I want to show you what he does, because I want to show you us the power of forgiveness and also what happens when we break the cycle. So uh, we're going to go to Genesis chapter 50, uh, beginning in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So really quick, notice uh, right there, one, they say pay us back. They talk about it in really like economic terms, right? Because what forgiveness is, is it's releasing a, a moral or ethical debt that someone has. And it's saying, I'm not gonna hold that against you anymore. But there is a cost. And Joseph's brothers rightfully expect that this cycle is going to continue. They've seen family after family member kill, hop over, damage, and wound each other, all in this process to obtain the good. That's all they've ever known. So, of course, that's what they're expecting Joseph to do to them. And now that he's literally the second in, in power over the most powerful nation on earth, of course, they're like, he could wipe us out and he would not have any consequences. There's nothing stopping him from doing that to us. So look what they did. In verse 16, they sent a message to Joseph. They sent messengers to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brother and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. By the way, if you don't know what's happening here, let me just briefly explain it. They are sending messengers on their behalf to apologize. 
They are so scared of Joseph right now that this is literally like when you were younger, when you were a kid, and you got in trouble, and you sent your sibling into the house to see how mad your parents were. This is that. <laughs> Except it's happening with like 40, 50, and 60-year-old men. <laughs> but again, it's all they've ever known. This dysfunction, this brokenness. It's all they've ever seen. Who could blame them? So Joseph responds. Joseph wept when they, the messengers, spoke to him. So he's not throwing an angry temper tantrum. So look how the brothers respond. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. By the way, the word servants there in the original language is translated as slave. Behold, we are your slaves as in the very thing the brothers sold Joseph into to become. So they're like, we deserve, we, pay us back the way we harmed you. And I mentioned to you, what would you do if you were face to face with the person who has damaged you the most? What would you say, what would you do if there were no consequences? I think that's a really sobering question. Um, I made the decision, this wasn't in my notes when I spoke on Thursday or the last hour, but I made the decision that I was just going to be authentic and honest, because um, unless, I'm, unless I'm living this out, I have no right to talk to anyone in this room. And I want to tell you guys, I am desperately broken. Uh, about five years ago, um, my journey in forgiveness, has, there's been multiple <laughs> branches of it, but one of the most painful ones is I had a, a relative who was intensely uh, abusive to me and to some other family members as well. And I hadn't talked to that family member in 20 years, but the truth is, is the, the damage from that family member lingers to this day. I, it still felt. And that family member, about five or so years ago, developed sepsis and then was in the hospital and it was looking likely like that relative would die. And I remember when my mom and the crew sent me a note saying this relative is in the hospital and to pray for him, I sat there reading that message. I didn't reply. But there was this really broken, dark part of me deep down that said this one word. said good. Good. Good riddance. And as I looked in the mirror, I thought, I am hoping for the death of another person. Friends, I am so desperately broken. And as I looked at myself in the mirror, I realized I don't want to be that person. That's not who I want to be. And so the question, though, is, is how do you break that cycle? I think Joseph gives us a beautiful picture of it. In verse 19, he says, But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good 
to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And that one single sentence is one of the most beautiful and profound sentences in the whole Bible, and I think one of the clearest pictures on how to forgive. Not just that we should forgive, but also how. And I wanna break it down for us. Notice the first part of the clause when he says, do not fear, am I in the place of God? That one question is really interesting. I, I think Joseph here is saying, I do not have the right to judge. That given the same set of circumstances, the same challenges, the same upbringing, and the same experiences, I am just as capable of hurting and damaging the people as the people who damaged me. There but by the grace of God go I that I have an immense capacity for evil and for brokenness, and I have the capacity to, be, capacity to be the villain in someone else's story. We all do. And that's, by the way, I just wanna do a quick aside, and we'll talk about this in just a moment, a little bit more in depth, but that doesn't mean that what happened to you is invalidated. What happened to you was wrong and unjust and evil. But part of what Joseph's doing here is saying, I don't have the right to judge you. But that leads to the, the second part, which he says, you meant evil against me. And as I just said, for those of us that have been abandoned, abused, assaulted, wounded, those of us that someone made vows at the altar and then abandoned them, those of us who mom and dad should have been there, and they weren't, those of us that have those stories, mom and dad could have protected us and they didn't, that boyfriend promised me his, that he would love me forever and he was gone. Those of us that have those stories, I wanna tell you what happened to you was evil. It was wrong, it was unjust, it was unfair. Joseph here names it. You did evil against me. How many of you, when someone says sorry, is your initial response, it's okay? I'm that way, by the way. You just say it's okay. And I think this is my uh, amateur psychologist hat getting put on here. But I think there's this subliminal, subconscious reality to that that says, I'm, I'm gonna diminish what happened to me. But when we do that, that's cheap forgiveness. That's cheap grace, it was not okay. It was not okay what happened to you. And friends, I want you to hear me on this. What happens to those of us who have gone through that? It was not okay. It was wrong, just like it was wrong for Joseph's brothers to respond that way. It was evil. And the key to forgiveness is naming it. Because it's when we name it and have a clear understanding of what it is that we now have the power to pay the cost of forgiveness. And that leads to the third clause which, in which he says, God meant it for good. God meant it for good. I had told you how the beginning of the book, God was able to take nothing and create out of nothing and make it good. The end of the book of Genesis ends with this bookend that what was meant for evil, God can even turn into good. And it's this powerful picture for all of us. But have any of you ever heard that saying, uh, like that old saying, forgive and forget? 
The thing is, is how many of you have ever felt like that's like the most unrealistic saying ever? <laughs> no, God doesn't expect you to forget. For those of you that have been traumatized and damaged, that's impossible. One of my, uh, one of, uh, great theologian in the 20th century, uh, Lewis B. Smead says this, forgiving does not erase the past. It doesn't erase the bitter past. A healed memory is not a deleted memory. Instead, forgiving what we cannot forget creates a new way to remember. We change the memory of our past into a hope for our future. And Joseph can say here, what you meant for evil, God meant for good to save people's lives. And you might be saying, well, how did God mean to use my trauma and my pain for good? And I want to tell you, that's a promise even Paul gives to you and to me to this day. In Romans 8, 28, it says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, God is taking that and he has a plan for good. He can even take your most painful, traumatizing, damaging moments and he can even transform them into something good. And you wanna know how I know? You are here today. That for some of the people in this room, you have gone through the hardest, darkest, most painful things a human being can suffer, and you are here. You may have wounds, but they are becoming scars, and you are walking, talking, living, heart-beating evidences of the fact that they did not defeat you. You overcame. And now you get to be a walking picture of the power of God. God can use it for good. And he is. And he's doing that in my life. And he's doing it in yours. And that's the power of forgiveness that says the most painful things I've gone through, I have every reason to be resentful and angry and bitter. And instead, I am joyful I am here, I'm writing a new legacy. Because that's what Joseph did. He broke the cycle. He could have killed his brothers in that moment and he just would have kept perpetuating the same thing. He would have kept transferring that trauma and that pain to every generation after him. And when he saw his brothers groveling before him, what he decided in that moment was, it stops here for the sake of my kids and their kids and their kids. I am breaking the cycle. And the only way is through forgiveness. And so I want to share a story with us, um, a profound story of that to me really demonstrated this. I read this story of a gal named Pascal Kavanaugh um, this week. And sometimes when I was looking up, like, you know, stories of forgiveness, I was, like, reading these, like, really intense ones of, like, a dad who forgave, like, the, his child's murderer. And that just felt, like, so heavy and intense to me that I was like, we're not going to talk about that. This one felt so down to earth to me, but really profound. So I want to read her a, a glimpse of her story to you. Uh, Pascal Kavanaugh. There was a young girl named Pascal Cavanaugh. She grew up with a mean, cruel, and abusive mother. 
Her mom berated her, beat her, even threw plates at her. Her mother's deep rage came from her own childhood of being abused. Again, if we don't heal and deal with our damage and our trauma, we are going to transfer it and we're gonna pass it on. It was the only thing that her mom knew how to do, was to hurt others. After Pascal grew up, she was very angry with her mother and she moved across the country just to keep as far away from her mom as possible. Pascal got married, had her own daughter, and thought maybe my daughter will soften my mom's heart. And it didn't. Her mom was just as cold, as mean, as angry to her daughter as she was to Pascal. So Pascal made the decision, I am never talking to my mom again. And that's a lot of our families in here. Some of us haven't talked to family members in years. And we have lots of stories of broken relationships, broken families, and continued cycles. Pascal was going to be one of them. And then she got the call one day that her mom had several massive strokes and was in the hospital in a vegetative state. And her mom had no one else to make any medical decisions for her. So her plan was to fly across the country, tell her mom everything that had been boiling up inside her for decades, and then have them pull the plug. Good riddance. And so she flew there, trembling as she reached for the doorknob to walk into the hospital room. And then she saw her weak, frail mom, motionless in the hospital bed. And as her anger raged in her head like a storm in the sea, she, she was getting ready to, to just vomit all of this anger, bitterness, and resentment onto her mother. She got a glimpse of herself in the mirror. And she realized, I'm becoming just like my mother. I'm becoming just like her. With all the anger, with all the hate, with all the rage. And she decided, this is not the person I want to be. The cycle ends here. And she made the decision that day to fly her and her daughter back across the country, move close to her mom, and take care of her mom, make sure she got the best care every day for the rest of her mom's life. And Pascal says this line, which I think is profound, I see now that forgiveness is not so much about what you receive from people. Her mom was never able to apologize. Forgiveness is about what you can give them. It's about paying that cost to break the legacy, to write the new story. And Joseph did that. And guess what? By changing the legacy, by rewriting the story, his family is preserved. And guess what? 2,000 years later, a little baby in Bethlehem is born who personifies forgiveness on the cross. And that legacy was changed because you had a guy who decided the cycle ends here. 
And so my goal today was not to have you leave and say, I need to forgive at this moment, but just to grant hope to begin the process. And so I'm gonna leave you with this last quote, and it's beautiful. Forgiveness vacillates like this. It has fits and starts, good days and bad, anger intermingled with love, irregular mercy. We make progress only to make a wrong turn, step forward and fall back. But this is okay. It is okay. When it comes to forgiveness, all of us are beginners. No one owns a secret formula. As long as you are trying to forgive, you are forgiving. It's when you no longer try that bitterness sets in. And so my goal today was what happens if 2023 we'd be marked by generosity and forgiveness and that all of us keep trying because it's in the trying that we see God show up, change our families, change our legacies, change everything. It's in trying that the story changes. And so would you mind standing with me as I uh, close us in prayer? Father, I wanna say thank you. I wanna say thank you that forgiveness is possible. And, I, and I'm getting this picture, Lord, that there are folks in this room, Lord, and we talked a lot about the victims of suffering, but the thing is, is there's guys and, and gals in this room, Lord, who they are haunted by the memories of their own mistakes and how those mistakes wounded the people in their lives. And so the first thing I wanna ask, Lord, is that you would remind us the power of the gospel that forgiveness is always available. And that first and foremost, you don't hold our debt against us. And I pray, Lord, we can embrace that truth and live in light of that freedom. And I pray, Lord, that it's out of recognition of that truth that we can begin the process to forgive. Lord, I pray that every person in this room, as we hold our wounds and we hold them bare and we hold them open-handed, one, we would all know that we are understood that what happened to us, it was not fair, not just, not right, it was wrong. But I pray that you would remind us that those wounds are scars, that have stories of power, that have stories of reminders that we have overcome, and are reminders that we do not have to live in that bitterness, resentment, anger anymore. And you could rewrite a new story for each one of us. May that be our 2023, full of stories of changed legacies. Lord, we lift this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, I want to wish you all a happy new year. Thanks for being here. I want to invite you back next week. Uh, Danny's launching us in a new series. We'll see you all then.